We'll see on the sermon outline there, there's a moment uh, in my life, I'm not sure if you've ever had this, but I got to meet Prince Charles. Big whoop. I'm sorry uh, if you take offence either side of that. If you didn't get to or you think Prince Charles is not a big whoop. But in 1994, Prince Charles came to Australia. At least he was Prince Charles then, I should add. He's got a promotion recently. Prince Charles came to Australia. He came to Sydney and I was there. I was in the crowd. It was a huge crowd, actually. It was, it was in the summer. This Aussie heat was baking us as we waited for this famous person. You may have met a famous person before in your life. Uh, this was my moment to meet a famous person. Now, even as we gathered there, and it's a crowd of Australians, right? So that's some context. If you are new to Australia, uh, you're getting used to Australians and the way we relate to people, particularly to people that are in authority. Um, you know, the kind of our nation was founded because we were left here. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how we kind of uh, see ourselves in many ways. And uh, we have conflict with each other and all sorts of things going on. We, we, we generally can be a bit cynical. So the crowd was standing in waiting for Prince Charles. You could hear people saying things like this. He's not my king. He's never going to be my king. I didn't vote for him. You know, even though we're waiting for the famous person, we didn't vote for him, etc., etc. But we waited while the prince arrived. Eventually, after a long time, he arrived. And I couldn't quite see. So in this huge crowd, I couldn't quite see. You could see between the people, there's Prince Charles. And then you couldn't see him and then you could see him. And as he's walking onto the stage, shots rang out in the Sydney sky. Now, if you know this point of history, you know that's actually what happened. Someone started shooting at Prince Charles. It was clear in the moment of confusion that someone was shooting at Prince Charles, but we weren't clear whether he was shot, whether he survived it. And a lady next to me, I remember she said, oh no, he was such a nice guy. And for me, that about sums up Australians' attitude to royalty. Not that we were shooting at the prince, but that we just think they're just nice people. We don't think of them as sovereign or kings or having any authority over us at all. Now, just to cut to the chase, in case you're wondering, he survived. He lived. Uh, because the person shooting at him was using a starter's pistol. Like it's basically a grown-up's cap gun. And so he was shooting, not rounds actually firing, he was making a point. He thought, I will make a point about our rejection of this sovereign by shooting at him with a starter's pistol. It would have more effect if he had thrown the thing at Prince Charles. But anyway, um, Prince Charles was shot at, but he was just a nice guy. Just a nice guy. I think sometimes for us Australians, we can be cynical in conflict. We don't really understand our own history or our future. But what we do think is when it comes to kings and princes, we're not really into that kind of thing. And it's easy to then translate that into the way we look at Jesus. We think Jesus is just a nice guy. Even if we're interested in Christianity, I suspect for those of us who are interested in Christianity, and I've seen this so many times as we undertake our evangelism, 
We like, Australians like the Jesus saviour bit. We like that he would save me. We're just not really fond of the Lord bit, that he's king. We want to perhaps trust him for our rescue, but as soon as we get into the rescue boat, we then say, what, I've got to actually obey him as the captain? And we struggle with the authority of Jesus because we have a real struggle with authority ourselves. We struggle understanding good authority. We struggle understanding kingship, which means when we come to Psalm 2, and I hope you've got it in front of you, and we read Psalm 2, I think sometimes even as Christians, we can wince a little bit. Oh, that's, that sounds a bit strong language. It sounds a bit strong that he would terrify them in his fury, that he would bring wrath, that, that God would even be angry. And we struggle with that. But the point of Psalm 2 is, I hope and I pray you'll see by the end of this sermon, is this. That this is an opportunity to see how glorious Jesus is King and yet how gracious He is a Saviour. And that today is the opportunity to take refuge in this King. And the question for Bendigo, I think, is will you take refuge in this King? For us, as God's people, this psalm is a song pointing us in that direction. Uh, if you are not familiar with the psalms, it can seem like a funny word, can't it? Psalms to say it, but it's, it's, the, the P is silent. The psalms are God's songbook in the Bible, his prayer book for us. They're songs for God's people. They display his character toward us and show us how we can then come to him in prayer and trust, how we can live life like the psalmists do, calling out to him. Because these psalmists who write this, and we see in Psalm 2, live in a day that is very similar to ours. They live in a day where nations rage. As Rory prayed in the pastoral prayer, we wake up every day to see the news that the nations are raging again and again. And the psalms help us so much. We're going to be in three psalms for the next three weeks of October, the next three Sundays of October. Psalm 2 today. Psalm 42, 43, which is a combo psalm next week. Seeing how we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and our own struggles. And then Psalm 23. They're very famous psalms. And the psalms are so helpful for us, often put to song because, and if you're going to rap this, you could say, you know, like back in time past where memory didn't lack, they put music to, to even such things as a rap. They called it meter. Uh, the, the psalms were sung. But they're books, poems, songs of prayers for people in our anxiety and cares. And Psalm 2 is a royal psalm that speaks to even the church's anxiety, perhaps your anxiety, in a day that we can fear so much going on around us. And I think Psalm 2 is kind of like Acts 4. Psalm 2 is a protest song. Psalm 2 is a protest song of God's people saying, we know there are things to fear, but we will not fear because he is sovereign over us. And to start by saying, what can we fear? Well, look at the perception of the nations, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You see, when the Davidic kingship's at its peak, when this psalm is written, 
the nations rage and they wish to throw off such shackles. As we read this, we can see what's going on for them and God's people in that time and place. The kings of the earth love their power and they love extending their power. And what do they do? They take counsel together because they perceive there's a king in the neighborhood they do not want and they must see this king fall over. They think it's possible, they perceive it must be done for God's rule to be overcome. Verse 2, notice this, this is not talking about just a political kingship. This is not the kings of the earth seeing just the king in Israel saying, well, this is a political problem for us. These kings of the earth see the reality of what's going on, that the king in Israel, when this psalm is written, is a representative a vice-regent of the real king of the world, who's God, Yahweh, the Lord. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the nations rage and rage and rage. Against who? Against God. And they rage against God's anointed one. Who is that anointed one? It is the king that God has placed over God's people. When Psalm 2 is written, it's David for that time and place. And for all the kings that will follow in his Davidic dynasty. We are in Genesis earlier this year. We'll return there next year sometime. Remember Genesis 17? Abraham receives a series of promises from God. Genesis 12. 15, 17, it continues. And in these promises, in Genesis 17, verse 6, Abraham is promised kings. Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Of course, the first king is King Saul. Now, you might know about King Saul. He's the first of Israel's kings, but the problem with King Saul is he's the people's choice award king. So he's the king that the people want. And you know what happens if you just get mob rule and the people's choice when it comes to a king? It's never really suitable. In fact, they usually get sick of such kings. Just look at human history. People put a king in, then we get sick of that king. It doesn't do what we want. And so we want to get a new one. And that one doesn't do what we want. And the problem with King Saul, he was a people's choice, but not David. David was God's choice for king. And after David is Solomon... And when you see David and Solomon as kings of Israel, the kingdom is at its peak. God's people in God's place, led by God's kings. Sadly, though, David and Solomon also fail. They fail. Saul fails, but these kings fail. They're they're God's choice of kings. Promises come to them and through them, but they fail. But these anointed ones are there by God. And the nations want to rage and revolt against such kings. Generations after Psalm 2 was penned, we read Psalm 4 as, sorry, Acts 4 as our cross-reference passage. We're at Acts 4 and there we see the church, the early church, get it. They get their biblical theology. They get what's going on. See, the early church get what we need to get. God doesn't rule now. He's not interested in ruling simply through a strip of land on the edge of the Mediterranean. 
that God's real, true king, the fulfillment of the kings, the fulfillment of Israel, the fulfillment of the land and all the promises don't come into a geographic place on earth. They're all about Jesus who reigns over the whole earth. That's why the, 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 the apostles in Acts 4, the early church, get this. And they see this, that what's really going on in the world now, the fulfillment of Psalm 2, is the nations are not raging against a political king somewhere. They're raging against King Jesus. Now in Australia today, I reckon if you asked the majority of politicians on the spot or particularly at a press conference, are you raging against Jesus? What do you think their answer will be? They're not going to say yes. They're not going to say they're raging against Jesus. That's not politically very helpful for them. People love Jesus. At least they love the whole Jesus is a nice guy kind of thing, don't they? But what we see happening around us, friends, make no mistake, you can see this. Even our politicians rage against Jesus when we don't want Jesus to be Lord of my life. When we don't want him to be king of my life, we rage against him even quietly. There is this perception among the nations today, and particularly in Western nations, that the state is the highest authority. Now, what does that mean for us? It means if the state is the highest authority and there's no other authority higher than the state, it means it's the state that defines what is good and evil, right and wrong. It also means the state has no final accountability, maybe the United Nations, but not much happens there when it really comes down to the rub or the kicker or You see, the nations today, having moved God out of the picture, have said by this declaration, this is our rebellion, we are now the final authority. And you've got to wonder, as this show of force goes on, what does God think of it all? Well, we get to see in verse 4. Here is God's eye view in verse 4. God is not aloof. He is not at a distance. He is close and personal with his world. And we see he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The Lord is not at a distance. He says in verse 6, As for me, we've got a quote here, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is what the Lord says. So today we have TV programs that, on the modern day, I think, Colosseum. You know the Colosseum? It's a tourist attraction. You may have been there. Um, I was being able to be there myself one day a while ago, and the Colosseum is an impressive sight to see. But when you think of the Colosseum and you think Christians, you think, well, that's where the show is, the spectator sport of you know, putting the Christians in their place. Today, what is our modern-day Colosseum? I think it's shows like Q&A. If you ever watch Q&A, I've sort of stopped watching it. I'm a bit over it, but Q&A is that kind of show, you know, the usual mix, ABC's Q&A. You get the scientist, the left-wing politician, the right-wing politician, the foul-mouthed comedian, and then what do you need? What's the one thing you need on Q&A if you've got that mix? Ah, the Christian. 
and you throw the Christian into the mix, throw a Christian in with them, it becomes comedy, a spectator sport. Take down the Christian in front of everyone. That's the comedy of our day. But look at Psalm 2. There is another sort of comedy. That's comedy in and of itself because God laughs at this. I think sometimes the church looks at what's happening in our society and particularly I'm aware that as I preach Psalm 2 today, there have been days in the past and there'll come days in the future. Perhaps it's the new legislation that comes in. Perhaps it's the new prime minister or premier or party. Perhaps it's something that's more closer to home that makes us fear because I think the church can easily start to fear when something happens in our political realms that's going to affect me and my life. And that's the time, of course, to read Psalm 2. Because I think when those things happen, it's so easy for us to fear that God is not in control. He's not sovereign. He's at a distance. And perhaps we start thinking maybe God's a bit off-put as well, like I am. He's off balance. But no. Read verse 4. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. The kings of the earth think they have power. And the size of their power is like a shoebox to God's realm. And through this psalm, we see another perspective as well. We see what the sun sees. Verse 7. The sun. He speaks, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the Lord God that is, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the anointed one. This is the king. David then, Jesus now. The language of today I have begotten you is that language of I'll bring forth you in this lineage. God has made his son king of all nations. When we think of Jesus, we often have imagery of him being such a nice guy like Prince Charles. But the real Jesus is Lord and King. He is the anointed one. And like Prince Charles, he will visit Australia. And there will be a crowd. And he will address the nation. He will address all nations. But unlike Prince Charles, who's just a nice guy, this king is God. And for now, he is for us to see who is king. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We don't often talk about wrath or think about wrath when it comes to Jesus, do we? But Jesus comes the first time to save, we read in John's Gospel. When he returns, he comes to judge. And right now, we live in the days that Peter writes are the days of patience, God's patience. And God is not aloof to the injustice done, particularly not to his people. He cares And as we just read, his wrath is quickly kindled. On a Friday night, our family 
we like to light a fire in our backyard. And eventually over time, we're, we're still getting settled into life and our house. And eventually we'd like to have you all over dinner at some stage. And Friday night, probably the night to do that. I hope it suits you. And we might light that fire if it's winter. If it's summer, we're not going to do that. January, we're not going to do it. We don't have a very big backyard and the fire would get out of control. And well, that's the end of that. No more dinners at our place. But when we light that fire, we've got a Bunnings fire dish. And it's, I don't know, I haven't been to Bunnings lately. It's one of my favorite spots to go. We get to live near Bunnings. That's even better. But the Bunnings fire dish we've got is just small. It's just enough for our little backyard. I don't know what it is, whether it's the, the sticks we collect on the creek trail or it's the wood we purchase sometimes from the service station or it's just me. But we have trouble lighting those fires sometimes. And you just like to get things kindled, a fire quickly kindled. That's the biggest struggle. I can put the wood in the dish, that's fine. I can, you know, put the fire lighters in the dish, that's fine. But to get it quickly kindled is difficult. And so I have a hot tip. This is what I do. I use a leaf blower. And so we light it up. Amy doesn't like this. She's watching, I think, right now. She's a bit sick today. And I get the leaf blower, and now our kids love it, and so they want to have a go-to. We go, and it turns into... That is what God's wrath is like at injustice. God is not there going, you know what, I'm slightly mildly affected by the way people are treating each other in the world. He is not there going, I'm kind of a little bit annoyed, but, you know, like I can't seem to get angry enough about it. God's wrath is quickly kindled. Like a leaf blower on a Bunnings fire dish. He is coming to bring justice. He is coming, friends. Come, Lord Jesus. He is coming. And as he comes... His anger is not like our Bunnings fire pit where sometimes the fire goes a bit over the top. Sometimes there's a bit too much leaf blower put on that, Dad. Now, his anger is never over the top, but it's never underdone. It's exact and right and just. And he comes as King. King Jesus who reigns. And so here we hear this in Psalm 2. For those who are now, right now today, rebelling against King Jesus, we're to hear this psalm. Be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. The language of kissing the Son, of course, you can imagine, you may know this, often kings would have rings or things that you would kiss, you pay homage to. Jesus is not someone you're supposed to go, yeah, I reckon Jesus is a nice guy and he may be risen from the dead. He may be there. And look, if I die and he's there, you know, we'll work it out. Now, Jesus is not your, your kind of like your pal at the coffee shop where you're going to have a conversation with you. Once in conflict with you, you're going to sort it out. Jesus is king. You're going to kiss the sun, pay homage with your life. This is the only appropriate way to respond to Jesus. It's the only option you have is to either... Respond to him as king or not. If you refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king, you will perish under the wrath of God. No matter how much you rage, by the way, 
Psalm 2 shows us how we now get to relate to Jesus. And it is to rejoice with trembling. Have a look in verse 3. The kings of the earth, they say what our contemporary society says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the motto of where our society has got to in our thinking about God and his authority. I think verse 3 could be a motto of modern-day atheism. Here's how it goes. You can imagine this at the Atheist Convention. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The modern-day atheism of society says, we are now free from the thought that there is a God. Let us burst those bonds apart. There was a philosopher, he actually had many other roles. Um, hundred years ago, people were able to do many things. I can't multitask on two things. But his name is Bertrand Russell. You may have heard of him. He's British, philosopher, mathematician. Bertrand Russell said in 1927, so that's nearly a hundred years ago, Bertrand Russell said that when we remove the fear of God from our society and all that churches proclaim, then we'll have no fear and we will be free from fear. Bertrand Russell said that. I've got a quote here. Our own hearts then can teach us to no longer look around for imaginary supports. We need no longer invent allies in the sky. Bertrand Russell said, as an atheistic prophet of his day, he predicted that soon we will not need to think of God and then we'll have no fear in our society. We'll be free from those things. I want you to think about that prediction. Did it come true? It didn't. I mean, it's been a hundred years, so you'd hope maybe there'd be some progression if you're an atheist, that's what you're hoping for. But there hasn't, in fact, the opposite has come true, hasn't it? Do you think our society, even in the West, we are the wealthiest this planet has ever been in this country? We have everything at our fingertips. Are we happier? We are the most unhappy, medicated, finding our own ways to deal with the problems ourselves type of medication. Not even going to a doctor, but we find all sorts of ways to appease the gaping hole in our hearts and to dull the fear that we have. We're less happier about anything and we fret more about everything. And I want to say, that can be me too. So I'm not just saying this is just society, allows look at what's wrong with you. I, I feel this because I swim in this. This is us, isn't it? Fear is probably the strongest and most confusing human emotion. Our society has become one that revolves around our fears. We fear global events that will overtake and control our lives. We fear what happens overseas will affect the price of the pump on Tuesday. We fear so much, we look for leaders to show that they're really in control. 
we daily feel we eat. This happened to me the other day. I mean, I'm, I'm, I generally am not a person that fears what I eat. And I'm married and kids and middle age. And I'm like, now I'm fearing what I'm eating because it might kill me. So the other day I went to a shop with a mate, another minister, and, and uh, we, we got some um, food and there's the, there's the display of drinks. And I knew in my, in my mind, there's like my, my wife's voice, it's like Jiminy Cricket going, there's the water, there's the water, you need to drink water, H2O is for you. Um, they're going, mm, you, I really need, it's 12 o'clock, I'm needing that soft drink. And so I looked, and my mate said, what are you going to get, Pepsi Max? And I said, no, I'm going to get the Pepsi. He's like, what? And I, thought, I was like, what? Because if you go to the Pepsi, right, it's full of sugar. But you go to the Pepsi Max, it's full of sweeteners, and they're carcinogenic. We fear even picking the Pepsi. We fear everything. Our society is so self-centered, we become enslaved to fear. Our religion can become therapy alone. We worship the idol of worldly fulfillment, and yet our fears are always with us. And what Psalm 2 is saying is this, in a world of those fears, let's change your fear. Change it from a worldly, sinful fear that fails you and haunts you and plagues you to a fear that is of love, that gives you an awestruck sight of God and His glory. We can serve the Lord with fear and that leads to flourishing. Even as Christians, I think we have fears. We see the nations rage around us and we start getting anxious about our own safety. We see a new premier we worry about what happens in our state and what will happen to the church. There's so much fear in life. And this sends us in all sorts of wrong directions, even as a church, because we get confused. We start thinking we're going to take things in our own hands. And we start forgetting that actually everything is in God's hands. And the next thing that happens for us as Christians is we start to hear that language of fear and fear God. And we think, oh... Goodness, that sounds gloomy. So now I've got to be like, really like, I've got to be like scared of God. Well, that'll fix things. You want to say really absolutely terrified of him. But that's not the kind of fear that Psalm 2 speaks about. How do we know that, by the way? Well, it's where we had our other cross-reference passage from Exodus 20. You know, Exodus 20 is a famous passage, of course, because in Exodus 20, it's the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, as God is giving the Ten Commandments, and there's God's people receiving those commandments, we read in Exodus 20, there was thunder and flashes of lightning. They see the glory of God. They cannot handle it. And Moses says this, and I want you to hear the swap in fear. Hear the swap in fear. Because Moses, in one verse, and there's lots of verses you can go to in the Bible, Moses in one verse shows us how to replace an ungodly fear, a worldly fear, a sinful fear, with a living, loving fear. Here it is. Moses said to the people, Exodus 20, verse 20. If you want to remember it, 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. See, this same word, different fear. See, sinful worldly fear is what takes over the heart. Sinful worldly fear is the kind of fear that says God's not in control and I can't trust him. It causes kings and nations to rage against him. Sinful fear causes us even to rage against God rather than refuge in God. 
The fear of God is to actually have a love of God by responding to him has revealed himself in Christ in all his glory and grace. See, to serve the Lord Jesus with fear is to, we see in Psalm 2, it's actually to rejoice. It's not to cower, it's not to be gloomy, but to fear Jesus is to rejoice because now your heart and your affections has something to attach to that has real meaning and who's really in control. Don't let your fears of what's happening in the world be your king. Don't let the nations and the directions they want to go away from God be your ruler. But now you get to rejoice and tremble in the sun, in Jesus. See, to serve the Lord Jesus with fear and rejoicing trembling is to meet his holiness and be moved in our own holiness to be his people. Whereas a worldly fear is hypocritical, but fearing Jesus leads to holiness. And it leads to us seeing that we have refuge in him. I think the church needs to remember this every time we fear. We see the rage, 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 and we tend to fear. But now we get to rejoice and tremble that Jesus is in control. There is a righteous wrath coming, God's anger upon evil rebellion. But when he comes, he comes for his people as a refuge. See, how does he do that? Because... When Jesus went to the cross, what did Jesus do? He was crowned with a crown of thorns as king. And Jesus is the only king who has come to die for his subjects and rise again for their assured hope. Kings, what do kings normally do? They conquer lands, they conquer nations, they rule with an iron fist. What does Jesus do? He conquers sin, he conquers death, and he rules as a risen one with a heart towards his people. You can now take refuge in him as your king. And what that means for us right now is, if you are still looking into Christianity, you're checking out the Christian faith, well, the Christian faith, you need to see this from verse from Psalm 2, the Christian faith is about Jesus being king and you don't get to vote him in or not. Like, you don't get to vote kings in. Kings are kings because they conquered. And he has conquered sin and death. He's the only king that's done that. Which means your response to him is not to vote him in or not. The only appropriate response is to trust him as your saviour and obey him as your Lord. And that will see you rejoice, actually. Rejoice and tremble. It's not a dour, gloomy thing. It's a rejoicing thing. Because this king, look at this king as a king like no other. This king is like unlike any other king. This king is the one who comes so that you can take refuge in him. And you take refuge in him because he is the one who has actually taken all the wrath already for you. There's a famous story. Um, I heard Tim Keller once say it. That's, many pictures have used it. I think it's really helpful for this point to remember how Jesus takes all the wrath. There's a famous story. It happened in America um, at wildfires. We call them bushfires, big fires. And the, the firefighters had come in to do the mopping up, the cleaning up. So the majority of the fire had been through. 
Um, there's spot fires around the place. There's trees on fire. So if you know what that's like to fight those fires, you've got to cut that tree down, get the fire out, that kind of thing. And as the firefighters are coming through, doing that job, they're just walking on foot. One of the firefighters comes across a tree on fire, a bit of a stump. At the bottom of the stump, there's this charred thing that the firefighter couldn't quite identify to start with. And so with his, um, with his pole, just kind of pokes it. And it turns out it was... A burnt, dead, um, it was a, a burnt and dead bird, a large bird. And so the firefighter kind of just poked around at it and, until he, he realized as he kept poking and the bird's kind of charred wing broke off, inside were the babies, the chicks. They couldn't fly. They were there on the ground underneath the mother's protective Wings. You know what had happened? As that fiery wrath came through, the white hot heat came through that forest. The mother took her chicks who couldn't fly, couldn't do anything else, and she enveloped them in her body and wings and so that she took the full force of those flames. And she gave her life so that chicks could live. It's a famous story. You can Google it. I think it was in Reader's Digest once. Point is, that's what Jesus has done for us. He's not a king that visits just like Prince Charles for us to kind of cheer. But he's a king who comes to encircle us and keep us in his refuge against the wrath of God. He is the one whose life is taken to save his subjects, you and I. He is the one who in the day of trouble, when nations rage, protects us. As we finish, I think it's fascinating our other cross-reference passage, Acts 4. In Acts 4, the early church, they've grown, they've seen God do wonderful things, thousands of people. And then persecution breaks out. Trouble breaks out. Now, where we in the West, in Australia, the church can often panic about that. What do they do? Yes, they experience fear. But instead of panicking, what do they do? They pray. And you notice how they pray? They don't pray for protection. Why? because they know they've already got it. What can be done to them, body and soul? They've already protected, they're safe in Christ. They don't even pray to escape persecution by the state. They don't even pray, get this, here's what's even more, they don't even pray that God would raise up a Christian political party to take over. They don't pray for a lobby group or a Christian league to petition the emperor or Herod? What do they pray? They pray for boldness. They pray that they would not fear, that they would take refuge in Jesus, that they would rejoice with trembling. They quote Psalm 2. And as they quote Psalm 2 and they pray this psalm, they pray that they would take refuge in the Saviour. Friends, 
May that be our prayer. And let's pray that others would do so too. Let's pray now and then sing. Our Lord and God, glorious and gracious, we have come to take refuge in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you through the gospel of your Son, we by grace are recipients, not only of grace, but recipients as subjects of the King who is our refuge. And so we pray that we would now, from our gathered worship and our sent worship, rejoice with the joy that sees us tremble with a trembling trust in Jesus our King. And Father, we pray this for our families. We pray this for our children, that they would, growing up in the next generation, with all sorts of potential fears that could scare us, that they would come to Jesus, not to be scared, but to be safe, to trust in him as their refuge. We pray for our political leaders. We ask that they would be, whether they be kings or presidents or prime ministers or premiers, that they would be wise, Psalm 2 style, that they would be wise and know who Jesus is, that they would turn to him and be saved. Father, we pray for the church, for your worldwide church that's persecuted around the world, that they would have boldness to keep speaking about Jesus so that even those who would bring worldly fear upon them would turn with faith in Jesus too. And Father, we pray for ourselves, Reforming Church, that we would truly sing of all you've done for you're on our side, that we would praise you and trust you as our strength and song, that we would live for you as Lord. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.